Welcome, everybody, to another one of my uh, interviews. Uh, I am really blessed today. Um, I mean, I don't know. I've done about 50 of these interviews by now, and all my guests have been great. Uh, but tonight is, and we are taping at night, is kind of special because I have Dr. Cyril O'Regan from the University of Notre Dame. And uh, Cyril is uh, smarter than I am by several orders of magnitude. And so it's, uh, it's, it's great to... You know, as I, I, I always used to tell students, you know, who they would come to my office. Oh, you're so smart, Dr. Chappie. You know so much. And I would say, yeah, yeah, don't feel stupid. The, the thing in life is that you, no matter how intelligent and educated you might become, there will come a time when you will be around somebody who makes you feel profoundly stupid <laughs> and, and uneducated and, 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 a, and a complete moron. Uh, and uh, that's kind of the way I felt when I first met David L. Schindler. Um, and I'm not saying that you make me feel like a moron, but you are, by <laughs> orders of magnitude, uh, more educated than I am. And so I'm really happy to have you. So this is Dr. Cyril O'Regan. My colleague, Dr. Rodney Hauser, is also with me this evening. And actually, Rodney knows more about Cyril's theology uh, and philosophy than I do. And we'll get to that in a second. But Dr. O'Regan teaches at the University of Notre Dame. He's the Catherine F. Husking Professor of Theology. There is primary field of study is systematic theology, secondary is history of Christianity. Uh, Dr. O'Regan got his Ph.D. at Yale University uh, and uh, where he actually taught for a while in this in the religious studies department uh, before he came to Notre Dame in 1999. His work spans a number of areas, systematic theology, historical theology and continental philosophy, which I'm always very interested in. And he's done considerable work in 19th century theology and philosophy, postmodern thought, mysticism, apocalyptic, Gnosticism, religion and literature, major Catholic figures such as Newman, de Lubac, Hans Wurzman, Balthasar, Benedict XVI, and Doctrines of Trinity and the Last Things. And he's shortly going to complete two volumes dealing with the relationship between Balthasar and Heidegger. Uh, he's then going to return to his Gnosticism and Modernity project, and he intends to write a volume on Gnosticism and German idealism, and then a volume on Gnosticism and German and English romanticism, uh, among other things. All right, His books include The Heterodox Hegel, which, which I've read, uh, The Gnostic Return in Modernity, which I've read, and then Gnostic Apocalypse, Jacob Boehm's Haunted Narrative, Theology and Spaces of Apocalyptic, and then The Anatomy of Misremembering, Balthazar's Response to Philosophical Modernity. And I'm ashamed. I've always wanted to read that text. I never had, although I have heard you speak on it. Anyway, uh, so that, uh, and I'm sure I'm only scratching the surface of the many papers and articles and reviews and so on. Uh, that Dr. O'Regan. So I hope my viewers then understand why it is I'm so very pleased to host uh, Dr. O'Regan tonight. And of course, my viewers know Dr. Rodney Hauser, chair of the Department of Theology at DeSales University. And I am more intelligent than he is by several orders. Of <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. That's not true. But I think we're brothers by a different mother, actually. So. Anyway. I hate I hate YouTube videos that begin with a lot of BS and banter. So let's get right to it, um, uh, shall we? And then I'm like, and how's you jump in whenever you want? And Dr. O'Regan, just jump in whenever you want. And uh, from here on out, too, I'm going to for, forego formalities. I'll refer to Dr. Hauser as Rodney and Dr. O'Regan as Cyril if he doesn't if he does not mind. All right. Now I'm going to start off with a very uh, a basic question. One of the things that uh, 
has always interested me uh, is ressourcement theologie, or sometimes called the nouvelle theologie. And uh, Dr. O'Regan, Cyril, writes quite a bit in Church Life Journal, which is also published at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, and there's been several articles of his that, that, are, that are very interesting. But one caught my eye that just came to my attention recently that he wrote in 2019, Cyril, uh, on, uh, the, on the Nouvelle Theologie and a sort of ongoing project. And one of the things that really struck me as interesting was you frame the conversation along the lines of Charles Taylor's secular age and his claim that we live in an imminent frame. And therefore, pre-modern forms of religion, Catholicism included, just aren't going to fly today in, in so many words. Uh, but that there is a sort of second wave of modernity uh, that then creates a kind of religiosity that that lives within that imminent frame. And you say that the project of Nouvelle Theologie is to, is to, in a sense, remember the past properly, to, in a sense, fight the misremembering of the past uh, and, and thereby retrieve ancient figures, not slavishly uh, to simply exposit them, but to show their ongoing relevance for today for helping us to break out of the imminent frame. Am I getting this right? Uh, yes, you, yes, you are. Okay, so could you please uh, just sort of riff on that, comment on that a little bit? Uh, why do you think that is so significant, and what is what is the state of this ongoing project? Okay, so let me start with Charles Taylor as a kind of lens which is wants to be hospitable, but may not turn out to be quite as hospitable towards Christianity as some of us would desire and that would include myself. But the first thing I think we need when sort of we're talking about theologians who are interested in modernity is to kind of establish sort of what framework are we talking about? What sort of are the layers of, or the development of uh, discourses in modernity, which cumulatively or singly are going to have some kind of impact upon sort of theology. And for the most part, I'm thinking of negative impact on theology. So it would be the case that Taylor is going to suggest that the entire evolution of modernity will tend to be some form of selection slash displacement of historical forms of Christianity. So the Reformation is a kind of internal revolution within Christianity. But that internal revolution opens out sort of on the modernity, which to some extent sort of it, it is and is not a cause. But in due course, some sort of of the mantras which are intramural to Christianity about each person is before God, each person uh, has their conscience, each person is affrighted by God and so forth. So we all have equal access and therefore, we can sort of sideline institutions with respect to that. <clears throat> that comes in due course to be an enlightenment principle. Each of us should be allowed to have his or her own opinion on important matters. Religion, obviously, is included in those important matters. Uh, and any attempt sort of you know, to foreclose, to dampen uh, us having the right to have an opinion while, of course, there is no kind of norm with respect to, is there any conditions of the possibility, are there certain criteria you need to pass in order to actually sort of be taken seriously by having an opinion and so forth? Now, all that's bypassed. And we simply have the abstraction 
that each of us has their own opinion. Those opinions will, in due course, uh, come into conflict, and we need sort of some kind of referee. The state will function as a referee, and the, and the state will function therapeutically, whereby so the state can reconcile us. But we also will have to learn some other kind of habits. That means we we shouldn't be obscurantists, we shouldn't be fanatical, and obviously we shouldn't sort of you know, go the realm of violence. We could stop there. In other words, that, all right, we can now think that somewhere or other the Reformation is implicated with respect to an aspect of modernity, that aspect sort of which most of us know sort of know fairly well, the aspect which has got to do sort of with reason sort of now seems to be sort of you know, preeminent. Reason has the right not simply to negotiate with fate, it has the right sort of you know, to um, wipe it out, essentially. It has the right to overrule it. And so the Enlightenment or the various forms of the Enlightenment, and there is no one Enlightenment or one size fits all. That is, we got the English Enlightenment, we got the French Enlightenment, we got the German Enlightenment, and these have different textures and different valences. I can bring them out in due course, but just simply I want to stipulate that it isn't one thing, it's a combination of things. Sometimes we stop when we're talking about how is Christianity going to survive in the modern world, or we want to itemize the various ways in which it has got attacked. We just tend to think, okay, that really what we're talking about is modernity is the Enlightenment. Right. And for certain purposes, I think that does okay, because obviously we have the rise of the authority of science. We have the demand, so there's no for rational explanation. And when one says, well, Various kind of Christian beliefs, so there's no, well, they're not going to be reason from the ground up. We'll, have, we'll use reason to elucidate something, but not to construct something. That generally, so there's no, if you're a really enlightenment person, that sort of no is not really kosher and so forth. You can get criticized. But, you, but there is the optical illusion. And here is, I think, where Taylor helps. That is that all we would ever be talking about of various modulations of the Enlightenment and the way in which it puts Christianity and the various forms of Christianity on their back foot. But that's not entirely what he means, and I think what he means is important. Modernity sort of is the Enlightenment and various forms of Enlightenment, plus all that all the attempts to correct for the Enlightenment without going back so there's no two kind of pre-modern mentality where we have faith and reason together. That is, that all the other things that say that happened in the 19th century, uh, what would I mean by that? Well, I think Romanticism, Idealism, uh, Nietzscheanism, all of these particular conjugations, philosophical vitalism, Romanticism, sort of, which is going to suggest that kind of, after the impoverished view of human being, that the Enlightenment is going to propose to us in lieu of a religious subject. Um, what's going to happen is Romance is going to suggest English and German. Well, that's a very impoverished view of human being. We agree with you that we want autonomy. We agree with you with respect to the critique of Christianity, but we don't agree with you with respect to what the capabilities or capacities of human beings are. Moreover, we don't agree with you that there is no that we have to foreclose talk about the divine. We can and should talk about the divine, but of course we shouldn't talk about the personal gods of Judeo-Christianity. <laughs> so it's these kind of internal, what I call in modernity, modernity is constituted by these various forms of enlightenment, 
and the ways in which so that then we have these kind of corrective capacities. Romanticism is one. German idealism sort of is cognate, I think, to romanticism in the sense that in a philosophical idiom, it's going to, I think, produce some of the same kind of corrections without ever forswearing the Enlightenment. That is, German idealism will also be critiquing standard forms of Christianity. We don't, in fact, sort of, we're not going to vouchsafe a notion of God created the world. Can I, can I interrupt real, one, one second, just one yes. second? To go back to your thing about without forswearing the Enlightenment, uh, obviously they're not agreeing with all aspects of the Enlightenment, otherwise they wouldn't be throwing themselves in as, in as, a, as a kind of uh, corrective. So when you say not forswearing the Enlightenment, do you, do you simply mean a kind of abstraction that they have in their head of the Enlightenment as, as the repudiation of pre-modernity? Or, 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 or what, what exactly do you mean when you say they, they won't forswear the Enlightenment as such? They won't forswear. They won't. They won't forswear the Enlightenment as such. Uh, I mean, probably sort of you know on any number of grounds. But the most important one for us is: Will they forswear the critiques of uh, pre sort of Enlightenment and pre Reformation Christianity? Right. Yeah, they right. will okay. not forswear those critiques. In other gotcha. words, they begin with those critiques and then say, "Well, yes, all those were fine." So everything you said negatively we are going to agree with. What you said positively, however, either isn't enough or is problematic. Okay, that's great. Okay, I interrupted. I'm sorry. Go oh, ahead. No, no, you're not interrupting. It's part of the question and the clarification I think is good. So for instance, um, if you replace a Christian notion of creation, which is, yes, God created the world, but God is also present in the world. Uh, and then you replace that by an enlightenment view that, a divine something or other um, created the world. There's nothing more needs to be said. We, there's no kind of way in which uh, God having created the world, that God is going to do any more work with respect to you understanding the nature of human being or the nature of the cosmos. In other words, there's going to be no, there. you can allow a transcendent God, but this transcendent God now is a kind of remainder concept. That is, we're not prepared, so there's no to remove it, but it's no longer going to do any kind of work whatsoever. That is, we can say simultaneously, which we used to be able to say simultaneously, that, shall we say, the maximum of transcendence when we're talking about God is also compatible with the maximum of imminence of God, right? We right. can't say that. Um, God is there. God is relatively idle. Um, God is not necessarily in the world. God does not necessarily preserve it every moment in the world. So every moment in the world of creation is a miracle, sort of by perdurance itself. All that sort of is simply we got rid of that. But as we got rid, as we got rid of that, um, then we're going to have some problems. That is, the critique of religion is fine because religion sort of is kind of stupid at best. Uh, <laughs> and it's noxious, it's noxious at worst. Right. So it it simply enslaves human beings, and human beings can't be sort of the kind of free beings that they're supposed to be. Well, what we have lost then is we've lost any sense in which you know, God talk could do any work other than God talk. That is, we kind of have a presupposition sort of that as we we do exist, the world exists, therefore something must have caused it. And we're lazy enough to just simply allow it. Uh, and for the most part, with the exception sort of of the French Enlightenment, which gradually and did the whole sort of, you know, the hold back and so forth is going to turn out to be atheistic. For the most part, there is this congeniality. We'll continue to have sort of vacuous God talk 
so we'd allow vacuous God talk, as long, and as long as it doesn't do any work, we're okay. The romantics and the German idealists see that that is not going to suffice. Mm-hmm. That is, that if it's the case of you know, God is doing no work, um, who are we? I mean, clearly, sort of, that clearly none of us sort of know is we, we can't, how do we, go, how do we assign our worth? Clearly, so that we're fallible. Clearly, we have our own stupidities if they're not, in fact, sort of, you know, given to us by religion. So what, in fact, are, are our capacities? So we shall, so we said we've moved away, so there's you no know, from anxiety with respect to am I saved? But we're not removed from the anxiety with respect to what can I be? Uh, what can we be? Uh, right. What is, what is our, our limit? Uh, is, is our limit a kind of groveling finitude? You know, of moral weakness, shall we say? That might be an analysis. So, you know, if you are, shall we say, a political scientist, that might be a way, sort of, of a kind of Hobbesian indexing, sort of, of who we are. But the Romantics don't think that. The Romantics, sort of, you know, are hyperbolists. That is, who we are, sort of, you know, at sort of, um, to the degree to which we're going to think about ourselves, who who could we be, and what's the maximum we could be? And all of a sudden, then, what you get is the divine is not necessarily God, and it's very interesting. Divinity sort of is an abstraction. God is not intended as an abstraction. Divinity then means that it's a free radical. So that free radical can be a free radical that I can have a commercium or commerce with divinity in which sort of, to some extent, the commerce with the divinity doesn't mean simply I participate in it because it's a free radical. I mean, I am it. And German idealism is going to make, make that sort of claim as well. We can say so that uh, the divinity is a free radical with respect to the cosmos. That is, we could say, oh, there's this interesting relationship between divinity and the cosmos. But of course, the divinity itself is so ambiguous that we can't say that it isn't, in fact, coterminous or coeval with the cosmos. In other words, the cosmos too. Or there is something in the cosmos that's not reducible to matter, not reducible to Descartes, Ray's extensa. And that which is not reducible to raise extensa, to the degree to which we want to continue to have sort of divinity talk, we can then sort of subscribe to the view. Wordsworth did it, sort of Thoreau will do it, Emerson will do it, and so forth. So we've got sort of no kind of the North American counterparts of what starts happening sort of in England and will continue most of English Romanticism and is indicated by German Romanticism. That gives you kind of one way in which we have a correction. And when you think of the 21st century, it isn't that everyone is walking around, shall we say, as a Lockean uh, or a Cartesian, <laughs> although we have plenty of Lockeans. We, I mean, they're numerous. Lockeans are numerous. But we also have, we also have people who think, well, uh, perhaps we should have more than that. Perhaps we should have a creation spirituality. Perhaps, though, even though I'm kind of dispossessed or living over transcendent God in my life, I'm not possessed of something that's divine or quasi-divine. Perhaps uh, that's what is going to be found in the cosmos. Perhaps that's what's going to be executed in the way in which I comport myself towards that cosmos and so forth. So we can have an ecology or a depth ecology, etc. And to some extent, you, you can even understand that some later German philosophy and Heidegger in some moves begins to look, look a little bit like that. So the genius of Taylor, which I think is the just simply, I think he is being intellectually responsible is that he's going to kind of curve all these things back to romanticism is curved back into. It's not an aspect of modernity. So modernity now sort of is plural, but also 
also, shall we say, it's involuted because it loops back into other things. It's not just the Enlightenment, shall we say, is not forsworn, but it gets ramified, it gets corrected. Uh, and the same thing, I think, with the vitalism of Nietzsche, sort of, and other other vitalists who are sort of not in the same intellectual stature as him, that will also have to get curved back in. This means that the modernity, which is imminent, or or, or sort of imminent is, is far more complicated uh, than sort of sometimes or others, Christian theologians who have read a little bit about Descartes and a little bit about um, yeah, attacks against Christianity think. That is, we have alternatives which look religious, but are not confessional. And part of the difficulty, therefore, of Christian theologians dealing with modernity is we're not just dealing with the Enlightenment, even the complexity of the various Enlightenments. We're also dealing with all these other curving back of discourses, all of which manifest the imminent frame. And we could even say because German idealism uh, and Romanticism and Nietzsche are all critical in significant respects of it, without necessarily, as I said, forswearing the Enlightenment attacks against Christianity. They're all going to agree on that. Um, in an odd kind of way, it ends up protecting, protecting modernity, because modernity now, you see, is not an easy target. There are all these different aspects. So you attack the Enlightenment. Well, well, Enlightenment, there are other things in modernity, right, sort of which are not totally lined up sort of with conventional forms of Christianity. Right. And they say some, they say other things which seem to be more hospitable with respect to Christianity. But what I would say is, and I would use a term by Jacques Derrida, all these corrections of the initial form of modernity in and through the Enlightenment and various forms of the Enlightenment are a kind of auto-immunization. They protect modernity mm. because it, it makes modernity much more difficult to deal with because these other discourses, which are precisely not Christian, have already critiqued it. So now, now what is your task? Your task is now has multiplied in complexity. Yeah. Uh, and there are going to be elements, therefore, sort of of this second wave of modernity that are going to counterfeit, in some sense, uh, that which we got in Christianity. So, for instance, we're going to get some element of human exaltation. Once upon a time, that might have been called sanctification or deification. Now, now we get it outside that particular theological context, et cetera, that kind of thing. Wow. Yeah. I, I just, go ahead. So, so, so what I would say, getting back to the more basic things then, so, and I'm, I'm kind of just slightly shifting into gear with respect to resource among theologians. I think one of the interesting things, one of the most interesting things about a resource among theologians, and for the moment, we'll just simply kind of deal with the Lubach and Hans Ruth von Balthasar. That's not a bad pair anyway, but I don't want Well, those to are the two you dealt with in the article right, that that's I right. read. These are the two yeah. I, I want to continue. And to they're read. my two favorite anyway, so I have a prejudice here. So, so let's stipulate, I won't talk, but let's stipulate, of course, that resourcement theologians are not always and everywhere anxious about modernity, right? So in other words, that one of the tasks uh, for a resourcement theologian is given in the title. That is, you think sort of that to the degree to which uh, Christian theology has somehow or other been tunneled into uh, one particular version uh, of a theological method, and been tunneled into one particular exemplar of a theological method and so forth, 
resourceful theologians by and large, and even non-resourceful theologians in the 20th century, are going to ask so there's no for a greater theological pluralism. That is, that the tradition itself has been highly unutilized or underutilized. So this would be sort of, let's say most simply, that we get to say, we get St. Thomas Aquinas, and then we might say, well, Thomas Aquinas sums up all of Augustine. Or we might go further, Thomas Aquinas sums up uh, both East and West sort of patristic fathers. And, and of course, we might, we might be able to claim that Thomas Aquinas' genius is the genius of, of synthesis and the genius sort of, you know, of being able to make decisions about where we put sort of, the theological weights with respect to particular questions and so forth. But I think a resourceful theologian is not simply thinking that Thomas left things out, that we need sort of we need these voices in their own voice. We need these theologians. Um, we need to retrieve them because, among other things, they, they often attack theology differently. That is, they're not as interested uh, as St. Thomas is. That let's see sort of let's let's imagine that we have a vantage point in which sort of you no know, we can provide the synthesis. But if you think about it. And I have no problem with thinking that Thomas Aquinas with Augustine are the two not really great Western theologians. I think that the two the two great sort of you know, um, theologians sort of you know, of the Christian churches by and large. So it's not no knock against Saint Thomas Aquinas. But if you think about what Saint Thomas Aquinas is doing, it looks as if he's in a situation in which. Um, there's relative peace, there's relative, there's relative kind of harmony with respect to what Christians believe. Yes, of course, there have been sort of, you know, some sort of, you no know, attacks against this or that, right? Um, so Abelard is around sort of, you no know, or had been around as, as a rationalist and so forth. Uh, the, the kind of assumption of or the bringing in of, of various ways is causing sort of some kind of problems with respect to rationalism, etc. Yeah. But compared with Augustine, he has it easy. <laughs> so, so in other words, that it isn't the case. What we can say is that oh, Thomas Aquinas uh, basically, so we can substitute him for Augustine, because Augustine sort of you no know, is is real time um, is real time crisis, real time trauma, and various traumas, real time intervention, and he has to use various forms of rhetoric uh, at various times to try to get or try to persuade people so with respect to the result that he thinks is desired. Yeah. Could we ever think, I mean, Thomas Aquinas doesn't have to think that way. He can look at the content and see sort of how balanced the content is. So Thomas's genius is encyclopedic, it's judicial, but there's a context in, in and through which that makes sense. Clearly there's, in any context in Roman Catholicism, Thomas is going to make sense with respect to topics. But the idea that he's going to be able to handle, let's say, a crisis of modernity, yeah, is not is not the answer to the crisis of modernity because most of the people assume so. They're you know, in order for Thomas to thrive, they have to put that crisis aside, right? Because <laughs> when you, yeah. if you were to decide, then Thomas is going to be genial, he's going to be balanced, and so forth. But but what if? What if so that we have all kinds of crisis? That is, that in Christian theology, it's not just simply a matter sort of the, okay, we can get a different rebalancing, rebalancing of things that Thomas has balanced and so forth, that we can, can tinker on the edges. 
Sometimes, sometimes we are in a full-blown crisis. That is, that discourses in modernity, which were not there, so they're in Thomas's time. Discourses in modernity saturate. So it's like it's not the case. It would be great if what we could say as Christians is, um, oh, over there, over there, you know, at least at arm's length uh, is modernity. Over there, there's the Enlightenment. Over there, there are these counterfeits, uh, religious counterfeits. No, we actually sort of know are exactly in that environment in which in which sort of the walls have already been breached. They have seeped into our consciousness. So unless you're thinking sort of that, well, well Thomas does that too. And, and maybe Thomas does that, but most of the people who support Thomas don't actually do that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I often think that we're in Augustinian age. That is, you've got to be kind of multiverse. Yes. Uh, your rhetoric sort of has to be varied and so forth. And of course, you still have to do, you know, just primary theology. That is that not just always talk about what context we're in, the situation we're in, but simply kind of do it. And yeah. won't say won't, won't say we ignore it, but just sometimes we might have to put it in brackets, at least put it aside just for that particular moment. But overall, I think the genius, the genius, I think, of resource among is, of course, it also puts it in brackets. In other words, when we think of resourcement, we think sort of our primary theological contributions. So Bodhisattva makes one, right? Glory the Lord makes one with respect to theological aesthetics. Yes, of course, there's some genealogical component. But over seven volumes, he makes it. Over the five volumes of Theodrama, he makes a positive theological contribution. And over, obviously, Theologic, he's going to make a contribution too. And similarly, we can say, uh, with the Lubach, sort of whether he's writing Catholicism or whether sort of he's writing sort of you know, on the church, the various things that he writes in the church, obviously all of which were very important for Vatican II. But and here's the point. I think it's not a little bit interesting that these two figures, while we think of them sort of as positive theologians, actually doing what they say they'd like to do, that is resource that both are genealogists of the first order. Mm. So that yeah. the Lubach, I mean, isn't, isn't it interesting? And this, this gets, I think, to the accuracy, only the accuracy. I, there's a lot of things about Charles Taylor I don't like particularly. But I think he gives us, he gives us, I think, a neutral description, which it seems to me to be relatively accurate. Isn't it interesting that when the Lubach, I think, is criticizing modernity, does he criticize, shall we say, the the Enlightenment per se. Mm. And I would say, isn't it interesting that he doesn't? In other right. words, it, it's not as if he thinks the Enlightenment is, is fantastic. I think he just simply takes for granted that's a problem. <laughs> so he doesn't want to be redundant. He doesn't want to be redundant. That's a problem. But like, you don't need me to say that. But what if you need me to say the following? What about Karl Marx? Mm. Um, what about Nietzsche? What about Feuerbach? Uh, what about Feuerbach? Exactly. In other words, this is a second layer. This is the layer sort of, you know, of the kind of arrangement, the fold of persons who are extraordinarily influential because unlike the Enlightenment, uh, they, appeal, they appeal, first of all, there are elements about it which isn't solely the Enlightenment, but the, otherwise they also appeal to the imagination. Marx is going to appeal to the imagination so far as justice is the carrot justice, but also utopian view. It's not just simply, well, do justice, do the good. We've heard that sort of for quite a while, right, since Plato. 
but that that well who's going to be the vehicle for this justice how can i cooperate with this vehicle the proletariat for justice and so forth how can i get how can i get myself right with history and this history sort of has a telos maybe even a logical necessity and so forth that's exciting i take it yeah. nietzsche is incredibly exciting that nietzsche is telling us that well you could be you could be an underman but you could be a superman and all that's going to take sort of his will. But this will is, is not just metaphysical as, as it is sort of, you know, in the will to power. It's also this kind of idea that you can entirely construct your own story. That is, mm -hmm. there is, what, what Nietzsche, Nietzsche's, what Nietzsche, I think, sort of is going to make all of us hang because uh, the seduction, the seduction that he's going to give us is that there's ways in which there are prospects of self-formation, um, which sort of we haven't tapped into yet, but we ought to tap into that sort of self-formation. The bourgeois enlightenment person has no notice of it. Christianity clearly dampened it down. Oddly enough, Christianity is far more wrong than the enlightenment, but sometimes being wrong is better sort of, you know, than being neutral. It's wrong insofar as clearly, clearly Christianity must have some sense as to what it's doing in terms of, of morality. It's, it's a deliberate damping down of what it must be recognizing. That is sort of that really we are sort of you know, a, a will to power. And we are the will sort of you know, for self-formation rather than the formation be given to us sort of by an institution, i.e. the church. On, on the Bodhisar case, again, I've said sort of how in fact sort of you know, he is probably the biggest, if, well, I suppose with the Lubak in terms of retrieving the past. And with respect to that, I, I make the following point. To the degree to which either you are a Christian theologian is against the various forms of the Enlightenment or, or kind of is functioning as a stipulation that the Enlightenment clearly is going to be relatively noxious with respect so to Christianity. I think the auspices under which that goes is forgetting. It's, it's, it's a will forgetting of the past. So the mantra sort of of the, of the Enlightenment is, uh, it's not just simply it forgets, it does forget, and it wants to start anew. But it tells you precisely the same thing, right? It tells you the new rather than the ancient. It tells you sort of how it's going to displace and replace. But it goes under that in order to be who we can be, we are not really licensed. We're the man it's a mandate to forget. Yeah. Now, yeah. in the second phase, I've covered sort of the Lubach with respect to this. The second phase, I think, uh, and I think the probably is the case Baldassar is better on this, uh, but I think the Lubach sort of is hanging around there. Um, <laughs> Baldassar, to the degree to which sort of, you know, he really is very interested in German romanticism and he's very interested uh, in German idealism. He's also interested in, sort of in Nietzsche as well. And all of those, all of those are regarded sort of as derailments. But in the Apocalypse of the German Soul, the three volumes in 37 to 39, it's quite clear so that these represent imminentist alternatives to Christianity, yeah, yeah, yeah. while they represent incredibly imaginative developments in, through, but also beyond the Enlightenment. And when I, when I wrote sort of uh, volume one, sort of the uh, books of the von Balthasar and Hegel, well, what I was trying to get at there is that it's not just simply that, you know, as he's sort of trying to become a theologian, you know, a very learned, 
a German speaker, not German per se, but a German speaker, you know, he does a kind of literary kind of rehearsal and then eventually gets around later rather than sooner to doing theology proper. But it is very interesting that if you read the trilogy of 15 volumes in the translation, you will be able, you will discover that uh, constantly he's involved in a debate with Hegel. Mm. And he's involved yeah, in a debate exactly. with Hegel not to show off. He has no interest in showing off. He may, in fact, by the way, do that anyway, but that's not the point. He has no need to show off. <laughs> he has no need to show off. So, so why, is he, why is he dealing with it? And here is where the category of misremembering comes in. There is enough, though Hegel is someone sort of for whom the Enlightenment cannot be forsworn. But certain aspects of the Enlightenment, uh, as far as he's concerned, you know, are short-sighted. They're going to leave sort of human beings high and dry. They're going to leave the cosmos as a race extensor and manipulable and so forth. So it can't do on its own, right? So he will continue the standard Enlightenment critique to some extent of Christianity. But what he's going to do is he's going to invent, he thinks discover, I would say invent in the standard colloquial sense, an alternate Christianity. It looks as if uh, in Hegel's case, we can kind of breathe, us theologians can breathe a sigh of relief. And I, I kind of think there must have been a communal sigh of relief in Tumigan because almost everyone in the 60s and 70s of Tumigan, somehow or other, sort of, you know, kind of is all, or mastered by Hegel to a large extent. Whether it's sort of <clears throat> initially sort of about Hans Kung or whether we're talking about Hugo Mopman or Jungel and so forth. I mean, Hegel is their guy. Now, before that, Hegel is also Balthasar's guy, but for a quite different purpose. That he's going to, from my point of view, um, Hegel doesn't forget the pre-modern. That it looks as if he's involved in retrieval, like Balthasar and the Lubeck are involved. Therefore, he does seem to be favoring something, something like memory, um, rather than the Enlightenment, which is favoring forgetting. The question then we have is that he seems to be favoring that. What does he do? How does the memory work? So the memory works by putting in place of historical Christianity something that looks like it, uh, but something that isn't it. So yeah. one of the things he does, and let's say the easiest text to read, is, I suppose, is lectures on the philosophy of religion by Hegel. Mm -hmm. And we find very interesting things happening. We find a doctrine of the Trinity. We find a doctrine of creation. We find doctrine of redemption, and we find sort of a view of Christ. We find the view sort of, you know, of history, church, and our community at least, and we find last things. And here's the thing. Not a single one of those corresponds to anything said by a major Christian theologian in the Western or Eastern <laughs> tradition. In other words, the, the Trinity is entirely modalist, therefore not really a, a Trinity of persons at all. Um, when, uh, with respect to the Trinity, there is some recall of sort of the tradition. I mentioned, and I do not joke, when Hegel mentions previous Trinitarian thinkers, here's the entire list. Jakob Böhme, yeah. Proclus, Valentinus. <laughs> it's not like as we are, as we are yeah. used to, right? We can say, yeah. well, you know, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's Luther, but Luther has a kind of economic Trinitarianism, uh, or maybe it's Irenaeus, uh, and maybe sort of knows Augustinian. No mention of Augustine, no mention of Aquinas, no mention of Nicaea, no mention of Constantinople. Wow. We can Not even Sibelius. 
so, so, I mean, people think so when I say sort of that, okay, Gnostic return and Hegel is sort of, you know, the kind of crunch thing. But of course, look, he's already heroizing. When he does that, that's consistent with how he writes sort of, writes of ancient philosophy in which Valentinus is regarded sort of as a major ancient philosopher with Proclus. Wow. I do not make it up. I'm not using a label with respect to things. But back, I think, to the topic at hand. But I would say then, the designation with respect to this is, when you, when you manufacture a counterfeit, that is, it looks as if you have all things in place, that sort of would be the redress of the Enlightenment. It turns out it's the Enlightenment by other means, by a counterfeiting of Christianity, uh, but whereby, for instance, we no longer have the self-God distinction. We no longer have the world-God distinction. Um, we no longer have anything like the afterlife. We don't have a personal God. We certainly don't have a triumph God in any strict sense. That's That, I think, sort of the reason why sort of I, I focus on that is the other versions of misremembering are more subtle. And so the mm-hmm. second book or book, sort of Noah and Heidegger, will give you another form of misremembering, which is much more haphazard. Uh, but this one is not haphazard. In fact, it's entirely systematic. This sort of is Hegel, just as he always does, and this is his genius. That is, when Hegel does something, there's nothing left out. So it's whole scale. It's a whole scale um, counterfeit. That is, everything that would be important about Christianity is mimicked and subverted. What Heidegger and do and others like him are going to do is they retrieve this and it will change. They retrieve that and it will change. But in between, there are other things that don't get retrieved at all. So the misremembering mm-hmm. has a different kind of quality. That, I think, is what I mean sort of, you know, when I talk about these two sort of in that particular article. I think I said something like that in the article, but I probably did to it. Yeah. No, no, you did very well. And uh, I mean... I feel like I, this is probably the easiest interview I've ever done because I feel like I can just sit back. I'm in like a master class right now because you've <laughs> just you've just in like 30 minutes beautifully summarized uh, so much so much of the the sort of seminal elements of your thinking uh, that I think are great. But I uh, I do want to eventually talk to you about uh, uh, Gnosticism. But before I do that, I want to turn it over to Rodney. Uh, and you wanted to pursue a line of questioning with regard to apocalyptic, I know. So go ahead. Yeah, although I'm going to do a little bit of improvisation and, you know, sort of uh, go off of what Sierra already played and and not, you know, play something totally uh, different. Um, but okay. so Cyril, yeah, no. So, the, the, I mean, that's the, that's so uh, interesting. I mean, I, I, I love the way you lay that out. Um, it seems to me then that one of the dangers of post-Vatican II, sort of mainstream Western post-Vatican II theology is precisely sort of getting sucked into this, you know, Hegelian ambit, you know, and, and Marxist also to some degree, because it does seem less uh, dangerous, right? So, so, so we're all kind of smart enough to know, you know, that... Uh, sort of we can't go down a Humean or a, or a Voltarian sort of avenue and still be Christians or whatever, um, or Kantian even perhaps uh, with the dualism between faith and reason. But, but these guys that are making these adjustments seem like friends. And, 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 and when you start talking about sort of, um, you know, the signs of the times and, 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 and the church kind of like sort of uh, 
catching up with the modern world and stuff. These guys seem to provide a nice opportunity for doing that. But it seems to me what you're saying is that in some way, Hegel is more dangerous than Voltaire. And, yeah. and I mean, could you say a little bit about that in the context of, say, post-Vatican II theology and things like yeah. that? Good. That's a very good question, Rodney. Thank you. Yeah, I think I could. Look, um, Voltaire is very dangerous, too. And probably, in a way, given our current politics or the style of our current politics, the tone of our current politics, that is that uh, we can say anything in whatever way we want to say it. Uh, and the louder we say it, um, yeah. then sort of we get attention, et cetera. So uh, I'd like to say that, well, we've been there with Voltaire, we've been there and done that, but we're never done with superficiality. We're never done with it. Right. Uh, so it keeps, it keeps coming back, as we would say back in Ireland, like a bad penny. That is that Voltaire sort of is, Voltaire's level of theological intelligence is that of a sophomore. And his genius is that he's got a sophomoric wit uh, I often tell my students when I'm teaching Voltaire that if you want to know sort of uh, when and where the public intellectuals invented and where all of what I think sort of is the malign cargo that goes with that, or at least sort of not, not good cargo that goes with that, then Voltaire is your man. That is, he wasn't, he wasn't a, a good enough Leibnizian philosopher, which he tried, out, tried his hand at and failed dismally, but he was a satirist and he knew, and satire... And he does two things extraordinarily well, which unfortunately so we now tend to mimic and we also do currently extraordinarily well. We are satiric with respect to those sort of persons and or positions with which we disagree. Mm -hmm. And we now have become geniuses of moral outrage. Mm -hmm. we are, we're morally outraged by all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And our moral outrage means that we're not responsible because how can you attack my moral outrage? I, I don't need to give you an argument for my outrage. So mm -hmm. it, it is it is inserted into the public as if so if your outrage was public. And then you have the immunization with respect to it so because, look, I'm angry. And your anger is the truth. And you bear no responsibility so that we're justifying sort of whether you're angry about the wrong thing or whether you're pretending to be angry. And whether anger, anger is giving you a competitive advantage sort of in the marketplace with respect to an opinion and so forth. That's stipulated. To the reader, which sort of we're talking about high culture. So in other words, I think that we, what we have to do is, is Voltaire more influential than Hegel overall in our society? And the ways in which, let's say, a young person is going to give up on his or her Christianity. Well, often it's going to be kind of more nearly Voltaire. It's almost never Hegelian because they wouldn't have a clue, so there's no respect to sort of how that's going to grow. <laughs> but, but theologians, however, are going to waft and raise themselves and be re kind of rarefied sort of you know, into, they want, in fact, some kind of high power intellectual pedigree in order to license, you know, their, you know, one standard deviation, or at least from their point of view, one standard deviation from Christianity. So you need to be at least one standard deviation in order somewhere or other to make it in the academy. I think Benedict sort of when he went sort of from Tübingen to Erlangen, I think was having this issue. Yeah. You want to have at least one. And of course, that's really not good enough. Uh, you need to have a couple more as well. But Hegel is going to sort of be a natural default. A, he is the Christian thinker. that He is the major philosopher in the modern period that seems to take on Christianity whole cloth, and to make it anew. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I think that accounts for his attraction. Everyone else is going to do a bit of this, a bit of that, and so forth. So the German theologians, who obviously sort of have a sense of their own kind of philosophical tradition, is not at all, I think, odd so that they're going to kind of alight on him. But then the content of Hegel. So I think that does explain that there has to be one standard deviation. But here's the thing. But look, it's only one standard deviation. Therefore, isn't that okay? I satisfy, I satisfy this demand for originality. Of course, then you prove you're not original at all. But you satisfy that and you can say, well, tell me where and when sort of I'm not really faithful to the tradition. I have some kind of doctrine of the Trinity, which is, of course, entirely heterodox. Uh, the doctrine of creation. Okay, only problem with that is that's entirely heterodox too. Doctrine of redemption, that's, that's heterodox. Okay, so indeed you have covered everything except everything is out of sync with what the tradition was, which seems apparently not to matter sort of quite as much as you think it ought to. Look, it, it doesn't mean that one has to use the vocabularies of all the previous tradition to be in sync. There's many ways of being in sync. There's some obvious ways of being out of sync. And Hegel's genius is he found all of them. And I think <laughs> theologians by and large. And so let me give you uh, the one I think sort of who's the greatest culprit, I think is Jürgen Moltmann. Yeah. Look, Hans Kung wrote a book sort of note on Hegel, 650 pages. I got through it at some particular point. It is a kind of eulogistic book. I mean, he doesn't really have, I think, the philosophical have to be able sort of, you know, to engage Hegel in any kind of serious philosophical way, not to mention sort of a Christian way. And after that, everything that he wrote is going to be popular in any event. So I'm going to discount <laughs> for a reason. Jung sort of is, I think, a complex theologian, and he has these Barthian moments. They're not <clears throat> Catholic moments, but Barthian moments, I think that will, that will do me. I mean... Uh, I, I prefer Catholicism to Protestantism, but Bart is a great theologian. I mean, he's sometimes intemperate, but he's a great theologian. Degree which Jungle has those moments, I'm fine. But of course, he has many Hegelian moments too. But here's the thing. Moltmann has, at least in the early work, nothing but Hegelian moments. And, <laughs> and the later, the later Moltmann is still a kind of active, active semi-repentance with respect to Hegelianism, which <laughs> never, never work. So, and it turns out that Moltmann has had, uh, you know, an extraordinarily successful career and has been read as much in Catholic theology as in Protestant theology, by and large. I mean, whoever teaches the Trinity sort of, you know, at any graduate level in North America will undoubtedly put sort of Jürgen Moltmann on the course. I did. Um, I don't... don't, Yeah, I I remember the crucified God being standard reading. That's right. Or Trinity in the Kingdom would be standard reading, right? So those those two sort of are the two first yeah. parts of the, of the systematic theology over sort of you know, six volumes. So what we can do, I think, is that here we have, here we think we can satisfy all the publics. There's enough so that looks like church theology, mm-hmm. but not so much that our academic colleagues, including those who we don't believe at all, but nonetheless might write about religion, that at least so they're seeing that we're trying, we're trying sort of you know, to uh, be original. We're trying to do sort of you know, kind of interesting things. Uh, we can sort of be, on the one hand, yes, we're making knots to the past, but surely, you know, once we have Hegel on our side, um, we're doing sort of things sort of, you know, which are going to pass intellectual muster. So what we're trying to do is pass intellectual muster. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to blame anyone for trying to command Hegel, right? I spent a lot of my life sort of commanding Hegel, but I didn't spend a lot of my life I must command Hegel, so I'm going to come off sort of, you know, a little bit better sort of, you know, than my more fusty and theological friends sort of, you know, who can't handle this kind of stuff. 
Um, I think so. That I think that it's the pedigree at the upper level, and of course, then there'll be a subsequent trickle down with respect to okay, if you're uncomfortable, kind of really, kind of uh, I don't know, so sort of whether they're a Christian or not, or Catholic or not. Um, well, here's a kind of option. Maybe maybe you can have it both ways, right? But you can't have both ways. Like, okay, I'm a Christian and I'm I'm fully a Christian and fully enlightenment figure. That's not going to work. So you can't you can't be Voltaire and a true believer. That's not good. But it might look easier if you're going to be Hegelian and a true believer. My view mm-hmm. is, of course, it never was it never was going to work because mm-hmm. there's a way in which um, it's hard for me to understand why people are suckered into it. Um, because look, Hegel's greatness. I mean. If you want to think about, is Hegel a great philosopher? Is Hegel a great philosopher that seriously deals with Christianity? I'm going to tick off both of those things. That makes him worth reading. But it's not just simply, I'm a Christian, I want to hold on to my kind of pre-Reformation Christianity. Yes, I suppose I do. But I wasn't always that way. Mm. But even when I wasn't that way, it's obvious to me, intellectual honesty demands that, okay, Something which has the same name does not have the same signified. Yeah, so yeah. The signifiers are the same. Yeah. The signifying is not the same. Yeah. Um, let me uh, switch gears just a little bit. Uh, you mentioned before how De Lubach and Balthazar were actually uh, very good genealogists. And uh, you engage in intellectual genealogies. I remember at one time in my past, I was a big fan of Louis Dupre's intellectual genealogy passage to modernity. I'm not quite as enamored as I once was of that, but still, and of course, Charles Taylor and others. That brings up the question of, um, to me, not the legitimacy of intellectual genealogies, but what, what, so this is kind of a methodological question. What constitutes a good genealogy vis-a-vis a sort of bad one? I mean, I once knew an Orthodox priest who essentially gave me, here's how you go from the filioque to the Holocaust in five easy intellectual steps. And, and you know, and we, we all know these kinds of uh, very, very superficial genealogy. Is, is it that, that good ones are engaged in thick description and are multifocal or... What would you characterize as a good intellectual genealogy, Cyril? Okay. Now, first of all, the reason why I started with Charles Taylor is that what everyone wants to say sort of about sort of, um, you know, a kind of garrulousness that I think he has, and I've heard him as well. And, you know, uh, sometimes I think he's made a point and he continues to make the point that he just made. Nonetheless, look, to be fair, A Secular Age is a wonderful book. It's a flawed, wonderful book, but it is a wonderful book because the description is thick enough to catch various things, various elements of what modernity is, rather than, rather than sort of to say that, uh, okay, modernity sort of you know, is the Enlightenment and its various impacts upon sort of you know, a kind of etherization of Christian belief and so forth. Now, someone can say that, and that is not obviously untrue, but Surely things are far more complicated than that, and they are more complicated than that. So it does seem to me two things are involved. I think that's sort of the description, which you said. Is, is that sort of one of the constituents? The answer to that is most certainly yes. Uh, if you have sort of a kind of, uh, the way I would put it is that sometimes reading Heidegger's work, you've got dashes. Now, <laughs> most genealogies sort of, you know, are not going to, but, but that's the reduction ad absurdum, right? Yeah. Uh, Plato. 
um, then next, may, maybe Augustine, maybe then Medievals or Scotus, Descartes, Nietzsche. But really, the dashes, the dashes are what? To, to, this is the line. And it, what we're we talking about is, is this sort of like a kind of, I don't know, Moira or necessity sort of going through things. And so what, what we get in someone like, like Heidegger is, there's this kind of, though he hates notions of causation, all of a sudden, his dashes are telling us this caused this, caused this, and that's all we need to know. That, I think, is reductive absurdum of those people who think you can give sort of a, a kind of thin description of sort of you know, what sort of the phenomena which are important for you are. Right. The second thing I think is that you're not to assume that modernity is only one thing. And obviously, it's going to be different things in different places at different periods. So, in other words, <clears throat> even the Enlightenment is not shall we say, there's the Enlightenment in England in the, what, 17th century. So Locke is the tip, sort of, Locke is the end, sort of, of what's happening, sort of, with Lord Sherbrooke early on, sort of, you know, in the 1600s. The French, French Enlightenment, sort of, you know, is the 18th century in the various forms of it, sort of, you know, the Voltairean, sort of, Rousseauian form, uh, the Diderot from the Encyclopedist form, sort of, the Hallback, a kind of atheist form. German Enlightenment is the 19th century. But in many countries in Europe, including my own in Ireland, when did the Enlightenment happen? It's post-1960. Mm. So, so we're not to, first of all, we think that when we're talking about an entity, that, you know, we, I think it's okay to kind of uh, talk about the major figures. But what we ought to do is we ought to also talk about the, the differential rates of the assimilation and reception of the, that kind of thinking. No one sort of in Ireland before 1960 would have had a kind of, Voltairean sneer. A lot of Irish will have Voltairean sneers now. I mean, it's just built into the fabric, sort of, you know, of critique of Roman Catholicism. For 1960, 1960, we're in the 20th century. The same thing has got to do, of course, then with these other kind of answers to the Enlightenment, etc. So we've got to assume it's complex. Uh, there, is a, there is a before and after. Romanticism supposes the Enlightenment. But Romanticism in many, in many countries, let's say in South America, so I'm a literature buff. So uh, I might, might read sort of sometimes, mostly in translation, but sometimes mm -hmm. in facing pages, you know, Portuguese poetry, Pazua, uh, Spanish, Spanish poetry or Spanish speaking poetry sort of known in South America. Well, the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment at that point is only happening per se, sort of the beginning of the 20th century. And of course they are catching up because there is, they're looking at various literatures, German sort of in English and so forth. So they're having the romantic basically romantic profiles. So something is happening all at once. Both these things now are squashed together without some of them being distended. You also need that. But that, that allows me to make a point that's even more important. That is, it's not simply that you know, we, any good genealogy would have that. The other, other and main question is, what are we doing anyway when we do it? Suppose that we do it actually correctly. That is, we allow for all that I said, so it should allow for, which will mean there'll be no brief books on modernity. And in fact, one could even say that Charles Taylor's book, which I kind of criticize as being sort of, you know, a little bit loquacious, actually, the ultimate problem with it is it's not loquacious enough. That is, put it, he would have to <laughs> yeah. do more to give, he'd have to give a thicker description. Well, I would say, I, I always remember, and, and this, I think I sometimes uh, think about uh, my good friends, John Milbank and David Bentley Hart. Um, 
leave aside for the moment, we can discuss that later as to, you know, what criticism there's made of my work with respect to genealogy of modernity and so forth. But let me just make a kind of point that I think so that maybe there's a question with respect to their own performance. And that would be the following. <clears throat> How could you possibly write a genealogy that would be thick enough and not just simply perspectival or aspectival uh, to account sort of, for how we came sort of, to be who we are. Look, we can and should, I think, sort of make, think that some, some texts sort of you know, had an extraordinary influence. Uh, and they had an extraordinary influence sometimes indirectly. That is, some people that might have come in contact with them become popular writers, and after a while they don't even, let's say, mention Locke or mention Emmanuel Kant. But all of a sudden, uh, people are persuaded. Jonathan Israel has written lots of stuff humongous books, thousand, usually about 1,100 pages on the radical enlightenment, that is the dissemination uh, of the radical thought of Spinoza. Now you think that's overdone, but actually it isn't overdone because he's able to show sort of, you know, how Spinoza did in England, how Spinoza did in the Netherlands, how Spinoza did sort of in Estonia, how Spinoza did sort of in Germany, how, how, how he did in Spain and Italy and so forth. In other words, that this kind of way in which a thinker uh, begets other thinkers, and they have their own probably particular national or perhaps idiosyncratic style, but some of the major kind of uh, things about sort of the nature of Christianity, the nature of religion, sort of, you know, which really is a kind of piety, sort of, you know, and has no true value whatsoever. That gets widely disseminated. And of course, this happens in the 18th century. If we're talking about a couple of centuries later on again, it's no longer even, we're not even aware as to when we're speaking spinocistically or not. We're not aware when we speak uh, like Locke. We're not aware when we call sort of on autonomy. Well, you know, Kant is the one who wrote mostly on that. How many people were kind of talking or assuming belligerently about autonomy? Uh, have they remembered Immanuel Kant? I think all of that, a very, very, very fine grain work is enormously helpful with respect sort of, but here's the thing. No person or even a group of persons can write about even that aspect thickly enough to give an account of modernity. But what about sort of the social conditions? What about sort of, um, you know, uh, what state sort of, you know, of industry sort of, you know, is Germany and VV England or Spain or, or vice versa and so forth? Uh, what gets opened up? So we can't, we, could, we couldn't or shouldn't fundamentally decide sort of, you know, ideas are what we're doing because then we're saying we're doing the history of ideas. We want to say more than that. But of course, you can give sort of you know, a, a thick enough description that would pass muster as this looks like a cause. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so let me sort of just, uh, I recall the following, which I think is very, very interesting. I remember Jean-Paul Sartre uh, writing about Flaubert. And so it, the title, I think, is L'Idiot de la Famille. L'Idiot de la Family. He writes uh, four books four 500-page vol volumes, so there were 2,000 pages. And then he finds that he needs to write a kind of mythological pre preface. And basically, the mythological uh, preface is the indication of a failure. There's one figure, an author, who over 2,000 pages, the author, not simply a whole society, he thinks of that he has failed to present a sufficiently thick description 
that that thick description will automatically account for. That is, that it will function causally. And then he has this famous line that Paul, Paul Valery, but I think he's, he's really thinking is Faubert. So, but we'll use the Paul Valery because that's actually, he just substitutes Paul Valery. Paul Valery, just like Faubert, is a petty bourgeois. Not every petty bourgeois is Paul Valery. So I've been accused of kind of thinking I, I'm supplying a total view of modernity. I think like Louis Dupre, I, I provide general indices with respect to modernity. I think that's what Louis, Louis, who was my teacher, I think that's right. what he provides. He doesn't that's provide... That's why I brought him up, because I knew that you had an, a yeah. relationship with Louis. Yeah. So, so I think that's what Louis provides. He provides sort of a narrative yeah. story, sort of narrative, a certain degree of thickness and so forth. He lacks, I think, uh, the ability of Taylor, I think, to link things together. So, so we have a kind of bit of a seriatim and so forth in a way we don't have with, with Taylor. But I understand what, what Louis is doing, and he's not making kind of great claims. My view is that can I speak intelligently about modernity? Can I speak intelligently about the unfolding? Yes, I can. But I'm not supplying a theory of modernity. I'm not supplying a view that all of modernity is Gnostic. It most manifestly is not. And that is Hart's claim at the beginning of his book, right? That's right. It manifestly, manifestly is not. Here is the point I'm making. It's a much narrower point. There are going to be there are going to be some forms of discourse in the misremembering category that look like they're Christian, but are not Christian, which are highly imaginative, where you feel yourself that they're highly imaginative, they're highly complex, but if you work hard enough, you're going to get something out of them. So Hegel will be an example, Heidegger will be an example too. So what I want to say is that both in the discourses of literature and discourses of philosophy, as philosophy particularly sort of relates sort of to Christianity. Only under those conditions, that is that, I'm not saying that all of modernity, it's just that you actually will find select examples, but powerful examples of what sort of we can class in the ancient world as Gnosticism, because the way I define Gnosticism is not vaguely, that is that it's not like Hans Jonas who's talking about, well, there's this kind of existential tension or alienation and so forth. Um, I am well-read in the history of philosophy, I'm well-read enough to know that that describes about, well, half of the thinking sort of in the ancient world. In other words, and there's nothing Gnostic about it. So most, most right. Platonists right. and Christian Platonists are going to be talking, talking about alienation too. It, it is sort of you know, a distinction, so that it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. Well, Balthazar makes that point in the Christian and anxiety. Yeah, that's right. And and look, I mean, to the way the wit, sort of, if you want to tag it, that that's not sort of the optimal Christian state, then fine. But you have to remember, then it's a loose label that you could actually say this kind of extreme form of ascetic Christianity, shall we say? And Balthazar sometimes says this. That also mm -hmm. is going to have the same effect, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So what I want to say is that actually. It's much more observable when you actually ask the question. First of all, you need to understand what ancient Gnosticism is. Um, and from my point of view, ancient Gnosticism is indicated, but not fully explained by Irenaeus. But it most certainly is indicated, notwithstanding the critiques of Irenaeus by any number of scholars, and notwithstanding David Bendihart's ignoring of Irenaeus, which essentially he does. What Irenaeus suggests is that 
when you're talking about Gnosticism, what you're really looking at is the way in which the biblical narrative uh, gets reinterpreted. Yeah. In other words, that is public. That is, the major Gnostic texts are going to have something like, what was God like so that before the creation of the world? Why did it happen? So there is a creation. Well, did one God do it? There is another God who do, does it. Is it good? Is it bad? And so forth. And what I, what I suggest is that ultimately what Irenaeus is suggesting is that there's a kind of, what, what sort of is generally a plus in Christianity will generally tend to be a minus, or at least every particular aspect of the narrative will be subverted and will, give, will be given a different meaning. And I want to say that there are some discourses in modernity which actually have some kind of access to heresological material. They don't have access, obviously, to Nakamadi, which didn't come in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, but uh, Hegel has some, some kind of uh, contact with it. Jakob Boehme, obviously, is a kind of intermediary, etc. But we observe, we observe in Hegel that he deranges or rearranges things in exactly the way a Gnostic would rearrange things. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. But I also want to say, actually, if I'm going to be classed as uh, I give sort of an account of modernity uh, and, you know, Gnosticism, even not, that's opposed to the moment that people have got the view that it's a much more narrow profile, looking right. at very influential forms of discourse like Hegelian and post-Hegelian and so forth. Uh, so that's a much narrower profile. I would want to say, look, um, and this, I think, is what I'll be after when I sort of finish up the uh, German Idealism and Romanticism book. It's not the case that all German idealists are Gnostic, <clears throat> Hegel is. It's not the case that all romantics are Gnostic, Blake is. <laughs> but, yes. but here's the thing. The category, which is a broader category, but so does not an account from modernity, it's got, got to do with things sort of returning that once upon a time we thought were done. Think about, think about this other category, it's a much broader category of Marcionism. Mm. Marcionism has got to do sort of with the way sort of in which anything got to do sort of with law, got to do with command, got to do sort of that God is not really the creator that we have to obey, but God sort of know is the one sort of know who indicates how we are to live our life and that obedience is required and so forth. We know that when the romantic, of course, clearly the case of Enlightenment doesn't like that. But it's also the case that none of the romantics like that either. That's the repetition of the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. What they're going to do then sort of is they're going to stipulate that to the degree to which we're going to be religious, we, could, we can allow that Christ is a prophetic figure. But this Christ as a new prophetic figure obviously is a prophetic figure who sets his sights against this kind of quasi demonic God. I mean, a classic example, so which is kind of in public space, and we don't have to talk about, so there's you no know, the ugly Germans and so forth in this, we talk about the English. Um, think about Shelley's Prometheus Unbound. This sort of is, shall we say, a, a kind of Oedipal story unfolded. That is, Prometheus is literally the Christ figure. And what is demanded in the end in order of a human being to be all the human being can be and to be rhyming sort of with the world and so forth is that Jupiter, Zeus, Yahweh must be gone. There's a staged disappearance because of viciousness, uh, malice, or sheer inutility. So 
that to me sort of is, of course, in one sense, sort of is a wonderful piece of literature, but it isn't only a piece of literature. It is a massive ideological statement with respect to substitution in which, now, look at it. This is Marcionite. This is not, he doesn't go off and talk about the Trinity and give you a different version and so forth. He stipulates that anything got to do in the New Testament that might bear upon the Old Testament, Old Testament God, that's gone. We might be able to save something sort of for Christianity to agree to which, you know, Christ is regarded sort of as a heroic prophetic figure that asking us to be all that we can be (laughs) and asking us to be in contact sort of with nature and so forth. So, yes, under that condition, Christ remains. That is, an element of the New Testament is still serviceable. That tells that, or I gave you one example, but I think Immanuel Kant does something similar. Mm. Uh, I would say, for instance, that when we think about sort of modernity by and large, and we think about, let's say, many of the forms uh, of Protestant theology, the beginning sort of of the 20th century, of the kind of Harnack type, uh, also the very kind of liberal Protestantism, they sort of are Kantian. We could say they're Kantian, right? They owe something, and they do indeed owe something to Kant. They owe something to Schleiermacher as well, who I think is equally Marcionite. Stipulation, of course, says that we are not to be thinking about um, God the Father. We're not to be thinking about creation. We're to be thinking about transformation and which figure provides us with a leeway towards transformation. And that, of course, is going to be Jesus speaking sort of for the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. So the problem in modernity, so with David attacking me, well, you got Gnosticism on the brain and so forth. A, I already said I'm not giving you. I'm not giving you an absolute account of modernity. I'm giving you indices of return of a particular discourse, yeah. which already is is already. But that sort of that is within a larger frame. That it's vast. It's vastly more, shall we say, in terms of extent. It's it's much more a problem. The Marxist problem is much. It's much more vast. Yeah. And, yeah. and what I would want to argue is that Gnosticism is only so that the limit that is. At a certain point, Marxianism is going to, someone's going to come along and say, well, that's okay. We've kind of been there, done that. I want to rearrange. I'm going to recollect more Christianity than, okay, we'll only stick to Jesus. Let's, re- let's recollect it all and let's subvert it all. Mm. Yeah. So I would say Gnosticism is liminal. The real problem with theology is that we're dealing with a Marcionite return. Nice. I, that's that's absolutely fascinating, and it's something I've been writing about a little bit lately. I think I see it among. Uh, I mean, there's a certain amount of right-wing anti-Semitism uh, that that you know protocols of the elders of Zion, the blood libel against the Jews. But it seems to me the Marcionism is largely uh, this neo-Marcionism is largely a problem that you find in progressive circles, progressive that's theological it. circles. That's exactly the case, and that would be my yeah. point. And yeah. they're the they're the carriers of the couriers of that particular message or that particular deformation. Yes. Now, Rodney, I've seen you were taking notes or something, writing furiously earlier. So you must have a question that you want to ask. Well, no, I mean, I was just, I just think that's fine. I I think I would like to see an article on the, I haven't heard you talk about the Amarsonite thing as much, Cyril. And I I would love to see something in in writing about that. Because I I think that's absolutely sort of fascinating that it actually catches a lot more people under its umbrella than Gnosticism does. Um, which I totally agree. I totally agree. I want to say about well, does it take the form of a kind of antinomianism? It doesn't always. It doesn't always. Okay. 
what, what, what it will generally take sort of is it'll be some kind of borderline ethical or moralistic reduction. So it's still going to obey, it's still going to obey sort of some of the Enlightenment kind of uh, protocols, that is autonomy and so forth. But by the way, just in terms of the geography, I do have an article in Church Life sort of you know, on that as is. And I think this fall, uh, I, think I'm, I think I'm probably going to publish two more articles one on Marxianism in the early Heidegger and another on Marxianism in the later Heidegger. Wow. Wow. So, so perhaps look out for those. Well, there, there is one already. There is one already out there. Nice. How's your name? Another question. Uh, I mean, if, if it's going to be a, maybe a little bit switch of yours, maybe not, uh, because I think. Uh, well, before, before you ask your question, OK, yeah. we, we're now an hour and 10 minutes in. I don't know if Cyril's getting tired. He has to. Look, here's the thing, guys. You know, I'm here. Uh, I'm at your service. I'm going to go on as long as you want me to go long. And after that. I have a glass of wine and kind of just forget the night. Well, I've already had my bourbon, so I'm cool. Okay, Rodney, go ahead. <laughs> but really, but really, take as long as you want. I don't care. Yeah, okay, yeah. very good. So, Rodney, go so, ahead. So, yeah, so and I think these are connected, obviously, but you've written a lot about apocalyptic, um, which is, you know, sort of a topic that scares off most people who want to sort of be respected in polite modern society. Uh, you've sort of, in a sense, Re recovered the importance of apocalyptic. And I just thought maybe you could talk a little bit about why you think that's, you know, something important to Christianity. Um, I have a number of different reasons for doing that. Obviously, you know, the way sort of in which has, it has been owned, sort of, you know, by sort of, um, you know, kind of right-wing sort of evangelicals, etc. So there's <laughs> that. It's a provocation. I can't say that it's not constricted for me, but, you know, I think it'd be silly for me to say so all of that. You know, I've never sort of you know, looked at it. As, so I have, but it's only that. Yeah. What exercises me more sort of is that um, I, taking account of this being a kind of cultural background and how that sort of, you know, can derange things. And generally speaking, when sort of people are thinking sort of of that as Christianity, much I think of what I think is Christianity, whether Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox, I think simply sort of is dismissed. So that's a problem. But for me, I think the, the narrower problem and the one that actually provokes me is the following. And there's two elements to it. The first element is that, you know, a kind of common narrative that um, Catholic Christianity only came into being because of the decline of apocalyptic. Another mm -hmm. version of that, of course, is yeah, that yeah. It, it really is down sort of, you know, because uh, of the, the Constantinian sort of uh, resolution. So either it's the second century, it's the fourth century, whatever. So, but in any event, the Catholic in, interregnum uh, is illegitimate and illicit. Now, for the most part, of course, that sort of is a Protestant narrative with respect sort of, but uh, sometimes I think sort of, you know, that that narrative secretes itself sort of, you know, into Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic theology as well. And said, so, well, you know, maybe I should make a biblical turn because, you know, the institution itself sort of is by the nature of the case, you know, anti-apocalyptic. Um, that, that gets, it's very interesting that that sometimes then sort of means that uh, Augustine City of God sort of is regarded by some folks, for instance, just in case we haven't got the message from these other these other two ways, Constantine on the one hand, and then sort of the second century on the other, the city of God sort of now is really sort of the, the tolling of the bells. Whatever remainder of the water apocalyptic, Augustine is going to tell us that, you know, there, there is really, we shouldn't be concentrating upon any end, 
with respect to history, we can have no prognostication and so forth. We've now got the history of the church, you know, uh, in a history as the, the church will be the raft, the raft in which not everyone will be saved, but some, some will be saved. Um, and so it's not the city of God, but sort of it partly relates to, but we're in history and history does what history does. Uh, and history is also to some extent sort of uh, secular so far as there are secular powers, which may or may not be Christian. And obviously he's, he's writing the text so there's no time of the sacking of Rome and all the rest of the stuff. So that's out there too. And that seems to have an absolute authority. No one sort of wants to question that at all. And therefore it seems that, um, you know, it would be just simply a contradiction in terms for someone to say, I'm, you know, typically Roman Catholic and I'm apocalyptic. I remember about 15 years ago, probably sort of is as long as that, I was put on the panel of the AOR on a book by Nathan Kerr, who had been taught by Stanley Harwas. And again, there was a sta the standard kind of thing, you know, there was the Constantinian thing. And of course, Yoder had also done the same thing. So Yoder, the Constantinian hypothesis, the interregnum, of course, sort of, you know, is the way in which the church got derailed. We have now sort of get back to table fellowship and various other kinds of things in order sort of to rectify and become apocalyptic and wait and so forth. So a whole series, and I made, I, I made the case, I wasn't even trying sort of to be particularly provocative, that I said, well, yeah, I can see that there is, this is one form of apocalyptic. That is, it's going to be a story with respect sort of to devolution and demise, so if no of original spirit. Uh, and then the recollection of it, but the recollection of it would be essentially beyond the institutional church. Now, this is done in kind of relatively significant high power theology rather than simply on the sociological side, sort of, you know, which is the commonplace with respect to it. But I sort of uh, brought in and said, well, of course, there is something like a Catholic apocalyptic. Mm -hmm. Well, it would be sort of like, I think, that I kind of invited my friends in all of whom are entirely naked, you know, into the NAOR room. Uh, <laughs> I think it was one of those astonishing moments that this couldn't be correct. <laughs> so, so it wasn't as if, oh, I didn't think that. No, it simply was unthinkable. Mm. So part of what I want to suggest is, no, it's not unthinkable. In the same way, I'm not, I am not pre prepared to believe that Augustine is not an apocalyptic thinker. <clears throat> it's just, an apocalyptic thinker otherwise. So let me just give an example of Balthasar. I think this sort of you know, will kind of get at the issue. So Balthasar spends, well, a lot of time in the trilogy, 15 volumes, but before that, and perhaps most clearly, in the apocalypse of the German soul. And given that he's critiquing most of the people he's talking about, then we have to assume that apocalypse, apocalypse is a bad term. And I, he probably does mean it is a bad term. That is that there is this vision of uh, and this way sort of in which a, a Nietzsche, a Heidegger, and a Hegel, and, and a Schelling somehow or other are going to move us beyond sort of where we are. That we're going to interrupt quotidian times sort of you know, being carried up, forward and up, where respect sort of to uh, somehow or other sort of you know, a new way of being, a new way of seeing, a new way sort of of praxis and so forth. So is he criticizing that? Yes, he is. Um, he's, not, he's not focally interested in talking about what are the ultimate origins of that, but I'll get to that sort of a little bit later on. But when you look, when you look at 
and the trilogy. And I just give you one volume so they know where I think the story is told. So Theodrama 4, it starts out with a commentary on the book of Revelation. Yeah. That, that's, the, that's going to be the crucial Joe 9 optic with respect to the positive proposal, eschatological proposal, which is made in volume five. And, and, that, and that's a culminating proposal. So in other words, it's not, oh, look, I'm a smart guy. I noticed, you might not have noticed, that he interprets the book of Revelation, you know, for about 60 pages. No, it turns out that's crucial. And the book of Revelation is the book, of course, as we well know, is the apocalypse, obviously, of the Lamb, but also it's the apocalypse of the church, inconveniently of the church. Now, the church of the is the church of the persecuting, yes. But the church also is the church that could succumb to the temptation of confusing mm -hmm. the Antichrist with the Christ. Mm -hmm. In other words, there are counterfeits out there. Yeah, so yeah. the job of the church is to suffer persecution if such befalls it. Doesn't have to welcome it, but to suffer it because the Lamb of God provides sort of you know the kind of archetype sort of all of your response to reality. But can I can I interrupt for one second too? Yes, you can. Also, by the time the book of Revelation is written, enough time had already passed. If Christian if all Christian if the original Jesus of history and the Christian movement was was a sort of failed apocalyptic movement. By the time you get to the book of Revelation, that failure should have already been obvious to most early Christians. It wouldn't have taken the Constantinian era. That's right. That and if, no, and, and, and that's that's now to make an interesting point. When we have when we have notices uh, in theology as to now we, now we want to do apocalyptic again, right? We, we want to move away sort of institutional church and doctrine sort of and rules and so forth. Uh, to the degree to which sort of you're going to uh, be biblical, not of all, you know, you don't have much opportunity. Are you going to say apocalypse and apocalypse now sort of and you're non-religious and just doing some generic apocalyptic, but you're going to have to license it some way. Obviously, you're not, you're not going to license it in and through doctrine. So you have to license it in and through the Bible. But it's going to be very interesting what text you're going to choose. Mm -hmm. Usually what's going to happen is you're going to choose other texts which are underdetermined, which let's say texts like Second Thessalonians, that, that's pretty typical, that uh, you're waiting on the hour. In other words, really apocalyptic is going to be folded into expectation for something major to happen. I know not what nor do I know actually the time of it. And much of apocalyptic in the 20th century, let's say Walter Benjamin sort of from the Jewish side and his kind of Christian and Catholic adaptation uh, by Johann Baptist Metz is of that type. Hmm. But what, what Balasar is doing is, it's, a, it's almost like you feel, and he wouldn't do this because, you know, he's, he's Swiss, but he wouldn't kind of put it sort of in an Irish cheeky way. Um, excuse me, excuse me, guys. Um, I thought, but I'm, I might be getting this wrong. I thought for us, Catholics at least, Revelation is a canonic text. So, and it clearly is the only one that announces itself as apocalyptic. So, does, does this not suggest that apocalypse, apocalypsis is carrying some content 
Mm. Uh, and it seems to me it does carry content and bothers us sees it. Yeah, yeah. It carries, it carries obviously to some extent almost Trinitarian content. It carries Christological content. It carries ecclesiological content. It carries notions of discipleship, and obviously it carries eschatology. Mm. So, is it has it got to do with uh, Revelation is canonic, but we're embarrassed by it. So my, my <laughs> if we're embarrassed by it, well, we get better get out of our embarrassment. It's canonic. <laughs> So let, let's deal with it. I mean, you have yeah. you can't just simply oh, oh that's embarrassing because yeah. there's some kind of virulence or possible kind of divine violence in the text. Well, yeah. we don't get we don't get paid to avoid, right? <laughs> we we have to deal with it. So the <laughs> bother does try to deal with it. Um, but that if that is going to be your text, then which is the text also for Augustine. Mm-hmm. How can you avoid? How can you avoid that apocalypse? And I think Bob Sarah is thinking this. Apocalypse, Christian slash Catholic apocalypse, is, I would say, the Christian. We could use kind of George Bush language. It's the vision thing. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the vision thing. It's a dramatic vision, and Balthasar gets it right. He doesn't have it in glory to the Lord. He has it there. It's exactly the right placement for it. So he reminds, I think, what I would say, that in a very attenuated way after the fact, Benedict is, I think, recording that, as he always recalls St. Augustine. So it is not a contradiction in terms to actually think sort of that mainline Catholic theologians in the 20th and 21st century are not apocalyptic. They may also you know, want to say, well, we can't figure out what is going to happen and so forth. Discernment is required. Discernment is certainly required. It's always required and certainly required where it's had to counterfeits. Um, and you can build in so these other texts sort of, you know, are, I think, functions function as exacerbators, you know, function as intensifiers. But the idea that you can talk about apocalyptic without ever talking about so the one and only text out of which it finds itself, apocalypses, seems again sort of one of the things that I think I insist on is that if you're going to be a Christian theologian, obviously my sensibility is I want to retrieve as much of the past as possible. But in the interest of intellectual honesty, that you cannot avoid and then sort of uh, kind of hope that no one notices what you dare not, what you dare not deal with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's good. <laughs> that's that's fascinating. And, just, a, and just a quick follow-up, Jeff, if I may. I, I oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, just uh, just another I, another element of apocalyptic. I was thinking of as you were talking, and you kind of mentioned it, kind of in passing, was the well, was the whole idea of the church uh, uh, on Earth either sort of living up to you know, sort of withstanding the persecution and being true to itself and being true to Christ and all that stuff. Um, but then there's also the possibility of serious defection to an antichrist figure who is is sort of a sort of nicer version of Christ, like you know th- that makes Christianity a little easier than 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 Christ would make it, right? So yes, exactly. So that's also something that I think many modern theologians sort of have this aversion to sort of thinking that anything that's out there that's being proposed could be outside of the limits of inclusion, so to speak, right? So that you have to keep making the church tent bigger to include every sort of proposal, sort of 
is 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 thoroughly anti-apocalyptic insofar as there are serious counterfeits that can be deadly, so so to speak. That's exactly right. Uh, a text uh, that Baldassare refers to, I mean, he doesn't sort of uh, explore it, uh, and obviously sort of uh, von Speer sort of you know, has been used, not in this volume, volume four, their drama, but volume five. So, but I don't really want to talk to that at this moment. She also is a kind of a popular theologian in her own right. But the text that he refers to is a, a commentary uh, on the book of Revelation by Paul Claudel. Mm. And Claudel writes a text you know, I think it's 1934. It may not be, but roughly that's the kind of thing comes into my head. Uh, I have read it. So it's not just simply a reference. I have read it. Um, and he brings out more clearly, I think, than Baldassar does, that the book of Revelation, to the degree to which we're talking about the Antichrist, and I think you're appropriately talking about the Antichrist, that, that that aspect of the text has got to do sort of with the force of ideologies. That mm-hmm. is... What sort of what is going to come uh, with prestige? Uh, some of those things become prestige are still kind of so far from who we are, so if, you know that we can probably resist them. But the ones sort of which touch on us more closely, and I think Kegel is one of those who touch on touches us fairly closely. That might not be Claudel's view, but it would be my view. Um, then, sort of, what we have to do, sort of, is that. Um, these, these particular sort of forms, which are pleasing, which also, and are pleasing and have more cultural prestige. Look, there isn't any prestige about being a Roman Catholic. And we're, all, we're all equal once we're Roman Catholic, right? We're just Catholics, that's it. Um, uh, so yeah, theologians may be able to do kind of stuff and so forth, but you know, the higher order, the stuff you do, that as people care in any event. So you just have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. but it is the case that that there is there has to be, if you like, I mean, if theologians are anything at all, right? Um, they're watchers, and Book of Revelation are looking for watchers, mm-hmm. um, and the watchers are presumably sort of persons who have time in their hands to make intellectual judgments about whether something is a simulacrum or whether there's something genuine in it at all. But but here's the thing. We don't need to invent that after a biblical text. The biblical text, if we read it properly, has already told us all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To what extent, uh, to go back to Balthazar, and I'm thinking of his book, Cordon Oda Enfall, The Moment of Christian Witness. Um, you know, in some, to go back to the concept of sort of, uh, you know, an analysis of modernity, it, it, it often strikes me that the that the challenge that modernity presents to us being is is dominated by a bourgeois quotidian spirit as it is 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 that it is actually um, it is actually an anti crisis culture in other words if, if like in in, in Cordula, Balthazar wants to point out you know there's the Anstfall moment the crisis moment right. which is a kind of apocalyptic moment in each and every person's life where that inbreaking is going to happen whether you want it or not it seems to me that modernity is precisely predicated on the idea that that's nonsense uh, that that you that this this is exactly what we need to shield ourselves against. Um, and, and 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 move along. There's nothing to see here. Uh, is 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 another way of paraphrasing a sort of ethos that you see 
in, in the culture of the cul-de-sac uh, that is modernity. What, what do you think of that analysis? I think it's to the point, actually. I, I, I do think so that, I mean, our culture and some people in our culture might feel that now is crisis or perhaps over the last 20 years is crisis. But I do think sort of that education is a powerful thing. It's also a powerfully stunting thing. That is that somewhere or other you get enamored sort of with your own cleverness. And I think one of the ways you get enamored with your own cleverness is that, you know, you think you, you want to argue with X or Y. You want to build on X or Y. You want to develop a particular doctrine in a certain way, sort of with a little bit of pizzazz, but more or less leave it intact at the same time. Um, so, so I think what we tend to do sort of is that we tend to do sort of, you know, what I think human beings, for the most part, sort of in whatever profession they're in, that, you know, we want to be radical, but of course, you want to be radical is precisely the most conservative thing, because you, as you're naming yourself, you're going to make sure that so you belong to some group or other and so forth. Right, you're going to right. do the kind of thing that's already sort of laid out uh, and that there's recognition available in the wings sort of for you if you do that. Whereas if you just simply think and try to think things true, God knows what the result is going to be. It might, <laughs> might, turn, out, it might turn out, of course, unfortunately, you have absolutely nothing to say that's original. And so that you're a wonderful Catholic Christian, but really you have no more to say so than a kind of normal kind of Christian believer. Or at least you have nothing to say that's decisively kind of different. And therefore, so that no, you are a plot. Um, but I think sort of my own view of these things is that, look, it, there is no crisis. The only way you could say there's no crisis, only way that proposition would make any sense to me is it's too late and we're lost. Oh, yeah. So it's either that or it's late and we're not lost. Mm. Yeah. Those are the two options. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I would say that mo most moderns in the West, yeah, they believe there are crises with a small C that pop up here and there. Gas prices are too high. There's war in the Ukraine. Putin's a nut job, whatever. But they're always, there's always seems in the minds of most people, it, it might be a crisis moment, but there's a horizontalist answer to this, a technocratic answer to this. There's going to be a purely intramundane answer to this. Furthermore, it's not necessarily a spiritual provocation. It's not necessarily a moral provocation. Uh, and, and so, yeah, we're lost. I mean, we're, 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 we're not lost in a sense. We, we, don't, we don't feel lost. We feel like, well, we can navigate. There's a crisis, but we can navigate it. No, I, th I think that's true. Uh, and it's true sort of, I think, in a number of different ways. Um, so, of course... You know, there's going to be acknowledgement of what actual crisis we have at hand, and obviously Putin and yeah, so yeah. forth. So this whole so yeah. except sort of that that. But your point is that that sort of is the exception, and of course, as an exception, um, it's not going to demand whole scale attention. In fact, that's precisely the way we respond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we we think it's sufficient to acknowledge it. You know, we say, "Oh my God!" Uh, for a few <laughs> days, so you know, El Gordon will be around the cooler be talking about it and then two days down. So the war the war is probably in the eight months sort of you know in Ukraine. Presumably there is one hour sort of you know where that emergency sort of you know is not felt. And for us, 
uh, it's an occasional thing. That is the degree to which we're going to pay any attention to whatsoever. And in the USA, we're given sort of no incentives not to pay any attention to that. But maybe actually we should be supporting Ukraine in any event. Maybe should we, maybe we should be supporting Putin. Um, well, I would say the other side of what you said is that we don't understand so that we're in spiritual crisis, which is already indicated by the description I've just provided. That right. is, we are we so that we have we moderns, we late moderns, um, have sort of been formed or misformed uh, into no attention, little or no moral imagination. Despite sort of we wanted every which way, we want to be different. We have an anxiety about our difference, but we actually always want things to be the same. Mm. So whatever political platform you have, it makes no difference. You're a radical. You really are not a radical. You want things to be the same. You want the prestige sort of you know, to work in that particular way. If you're the opposite, the same thing. So it's going to apply. So we lack all those things. And then we don't actually pay any attention with respect to that's our problem. Mm. We may have lost Christianity, but we don't know quite what we've lost or we're losing it. But, you know, we're not going to really lose it. So like. And losing it, but you know, like everything else, it always it will come back, right? So it will bounce back. I bounce the ball, it hasn't come back yet, but surely it'll come back in any event. Without me doing anything about it, of course, and without me kind of changing the way I look at the world or my investment in the world. The point you made, I think, sort of about that there is a kind sort of all progressive um that progress is part sort of you know of shall we say, I think, our subconscious, that somehow or other, you know, the worst that can happen is there's an interruption with respect to a progress. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the climate crisis is not really a crisis, or it is kind of, but, and yeah, we're, we're, the, we're, the, we're the people who believe in science, but we're going to figure it out. We're going to be able to what sort of, uh, we're going to get the carbon out and we're going to put it on the ground. And then, of course, we're going to find out that's going to be a problem as well. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. It will be a problem. So, um, so I mean, I have to say that even though, you know, I, I don't pretend so, you know, to be an admirer fully of Johann Baptist Metz's theology, I do think he's entirely accurate with respect to the way sort of in which uh, the mentality of the modern, the bourgeois mentality of the modern uh, is evolution, is evolutionist. That is, that it's got to do sort of, you know, with incremental gains, mm -hmm. non-radical non gains, um, but that sort of is the way sort of in which um, we have a kind of narcosis, you know, right. with respect sort of you know, to having a kind of you know, moral imagination with respect sort of to those who suffer. He wants, of course, our memory to redeem the past entirely. And I think that's asking us to do the job of Christ, because it seems to me only Christ can redeem the past in a significant way. Yeah, yeah. All we can do, we can remember people, but I think... We have to remember there's a major distinction between immortality of name and immortal and real immortality. And real immortality is we have to have an agent who can make alive. And all we can do is we can have an imagination and a memory which makes relevant. I have to say, when I think about sort of uh, you know my death or what's going to happen after my death, uh, it may very well be that no one will remember me, and that's going to be the case sort of you know with probably most of human beings throughout history, in which case that's the way it is. But the degree to which sort of someone says, well, you know, you're going to be remembered, you know, and then with a qualifying clause, kind of. Uh, 
and that should satisfy. Well, it won't. It doesn't satisfy. Uh, I will not be. Alive. I will not be alive. Uh, so, it, I, I do think that this way in which all of a sudden we insert ourselves as the hero in the story, and now what I need to do is have the heroic memory, not merely to retrieve the past and to put it before us again and say, "Please pay attention. This might help us along the way." That I think is what theology does. But there can be a certain kind of theology that says memory is to redeem the past and to redeem those who are invisible. Mm. And look, that's biblical. The invisible should not be ignored. There's a mandate from God. They should not be ignored. But our memory, our memory, so there's no, is, you know, dawdling compared with God's memory. We do not have the power, so there's no, to resurrect. And the idea so that our memory is fully sufficient to do justice to those sort of you know, who live miserable lives, lives in agony and so forth. The idea that we have the power to do that, I, it, I almost would want to ask, can we, can, when, can we first of all say that rather than write it? And now can we continue to play it back and to see will we ever gain a conscience as to what we just said? Mm, yeah, wow, that is just, that, that's, that's fascinating. That's good stuff. Rondi, do you have any? Uh, I, we should probably wrap this up uh, very, very, uh, for a lot of reasons dealing with the length of processing time of the video and that kind of thing. Do you have any uh, final question, Rodney, for for Cyril? Uh, I don't actually have any final questions. I, I think that that was a really uh, powerful note to sort of uh, end things. That's but what I, I thought well, too. I, I do want to say that this has been absolutely uh, enjoyable and thought-provoking and all that. It's great to see you, Cyril. I haven't seen you in a while, and I hope to see you in the flesh, you know, right. at some point. Uh, but it was nice to see you on Zoom, uh, at least. Thank you. Thank you, Rodney. Yeah, and thank, and you, I, thank you, Larry. Uh, it was very enjoyable, and um, so hopefully I didn't get too garrulous. But, you know, again, once oh, I no. get going, I, I don't feel tired. I feel tired later on, but I don't feel tired now at all. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's and, and maybe we can do this some other time next year so we didn't deal Well, with I would love to do a follow-up because uh, I have about 10 more questions swimming in my head. Okay. But I just realized maybe it's just time to just zip sure. it. And, uh, and, 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 and move along. Thank right. you, Cyril. Thank you, thank everyone you. for watching. And uh, thank you. All the best. Bye, guys. See you, Cyril.